So we are in a series entitled One Week to Live. And each Sunday leading up to Easter, what we're doing is spending one of those days in Jesus' final week. And we began on the Sunday before Easter. It's often referred to as Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. There's a huge crowd that's there welcoming him and really putting on him the expectation that you're going to be the general who is going to drive out the oppressive Roman Empire. But Jesus does something entirely different. He came to bring a kingdom, but not exactly the kingdom that we often think he should bring. And so there was a lot of activity on that day. The next day on Monday, Jesus goes into the temple, and the temple had been turned into a circus where people were making money, really this profit, and really taking advantage of people who came to honor and worship God. They wanted to draw close to him, and they were charging them astronomical fees to do that, and Jesus is not okay with that. He starts turning over tables, takes a whip, and drives out the people who are doing that. Animals are scattering. A lot of activity on that day. On the Tuesday, Pastor Mike looked at this so well last week, how Jesus shows up in the temple again, and there is a direct confrontation with the religious leaders of the day who had really turned the things of God upside down, and Jesus came to set it all right. But boy, is he direct, and boy, is he challenging. And so now we come to Wednesday. And we're going to call this Cloak and Dagger Wednesday. And by contrast to all of those active days, this one is pretty quiet. But what happens on those days, even though it's quiet, kind of behind the scenes like some covert activity, it's really important to what's going to happen later in the week. Because Jesus is going to be betrayed. And so much of the orchestration of that plan happens on this day. And what we're going to look at really raises one of the, the big philosophical questions. You go, oh, philosophy, that sounds really exciting. Just give me a chance to kind of get this out there. You know, a lot of times people will wonder this. So do people have a destiny in life? Or are we like free agents and we're making decisions and our decisions determine our outcome? Or is there some combination of both? And there have been many looks at that. I think it has really been portrayed well in what I would call one of the top 10 movies of all time. Um, Of course, I'm speaking about Forrest, Forrest Gump um, there now. You can maybe um, not agree that it's in the top 10, and I could agree with you that it's not, but then we'd both be wrong, so let's not do that. Um, But here's, here's what it says in that movie. I don't know if we each have a destiny or if we're all just floating around accidental. And Forrest goes on to postulate, maybe it's a little bit of both. Here's what we're gonna discover today, that there is a God who is sovereign, who knows all things, and a God who is in control. And we are all responsible for our decisions. And those two things live together in tension. And we're going to see that in the life of somebody that if even today is your first day in a church of any kind, you probably know this name, and it's a name that is not in connection with anything good. It's the name Judas. And he's going to be the one who is going to betray Jesus. 
So let's jump into the story. It was now two days before the Passover. That's on Friday. So you back up two days. We're on Wednesday. And two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes, quick aside, those are two groups of leaders in the culture of that day. And they, for the most part, did not get along at all. They did not like each other. They did not have the same agenda, the same direction. But all of a sudden, on this day, they are united. What is uniting them together? They have a common enemy. That enemy's name is is none other than Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, him as Jesus, by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So Jesus still riding this wave of people's expectations that you're going to come and do what we expect you to do. And so they're like, we don't want to do that in public because if we do, chances are the crowd's going to turn on us. Boy, if only we had some information about when we could get Jesus. We're probably going to have to wait after the feast is over. But then enter the insider. The person who has the information to hand Jesus over. Where he wouldn't be in the crowds. And it would be done in private. And Jesus could be betrayed. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And the word betray is in there a couple of times. And literally what it means is to hand over or to sell off somebody. And I think you have to wrestle with this question, you know, like I did in preparing for this. But Isn't it amazing to think that somebody who walked with Jesus for three years, who saw him do miracles, feed 5,000 people with a couple sardines and a couple dinner rolls, who even raised some people from the dead, who taught like nobody had ever taught before, why would you do that? If you were there to see it all firsthand, to experience it, what would lead you in that direction? Why? Why would you do it? A couple different views about Judas through time. There's a traditional view, a long-standing view that goes something like this. Judas is just pure evil. He's one of those few people that you encounter every so often in history. You know, we might think of Hitler and Stalin and bin Laden, and you could add, you know, some other names to that whole list and just say, that guy was just evil. And that's all he could ever do is carry out evil. But there's a more modern view of Judas that goes something like this, that Judas was well-intentioned but misguided. He's kind of like a tragic hero. He had the right motivations, but he got a little bit confused about strategy and how to carry things out. And so his heart was good, but his, his execution, no pun intended, was not very good. But Judas is somebody, you know, who maybe deserves a little bit of our sympathy. And here's what I want to tell you in advance of what we're going to look at. The Bible doesn't present either one of these views to us. The Bible presents something different. And it's something that I want to suggest to you as we kind of jump into this, because we might want to put Judas in that category of somebody who is just different, you know, than any of us or anything that happens in this world. But I want to suggest to you that Judas is more like the masses than he is like the maniacal. And let me... Let me put it a little more personally, that Judas is a little bit more like me than I would like it to be true. 
And yet there's a reality here about a struggle and actually a number of struggles that I think are common to humanity and that allow us to take an introspective look maybe into our own hearts and lives and, and motives. So Judas is going to betray him and he meets with the chief priests and the scribes and he arranges for a payment, 30 pieces of silver in today's number, that's about $7,000. And every writer of the gospels, the life and times of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, records this incident to us and every one of them links it to a specific story that happens. Jesus makes, or Judas makes the arrangement to meet with the scribes and then something happens and then he carries out the plan. Well, what's the event? What's the story? It's this story. And while he was at Bethany, he is Jesus, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard. Now, nard doesn't sound very good to us, right? It rhymes with lard. I mean, that's not good. And so we might wonder, what is nard? That was a very expensive, very valuable perfume. And it was in this alabaster jar, and this was typically handed down even through generations. And it was capped, and if you broke the seal on that, you could only use it once. They didn't have screw-on lids, you know, to take a little bit and save some for later. You got one use. And this lady walks in, we find out her name is Mary, and she breaks that jar and she pours it over Jesus' head. And then, what happens next? There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. So it's typical for us to say, yeah, you know what? Judas, we read about that in the Gospel of John, he's the one who says, hey, what a waste this is. We could have done so much. We could have leveraged that for so many hurting people in this world. And we think, yeah, that's what evil people do. But do you notice how this is in the plural? That Judas is not the only one who's thinking this. Jesus, Judas is not the only one wrestling with this. All of the disciples are. And they're all wondering, wow, was this the best thing to do, the right thing to do? We had other choices here. We had other options. And while we want to put Judas in a category all by himself, there's a bunch of people who were in that category on that day. And so maybe it helps us to understand, you know, this idea that could it be that what he was wrestling with that day could be something that I would also let me jump ahead a couple days. So we're on Wednesday and we're going to jump around a little bit today. Let's jump into Friday. And this is at that Passover meal, what is often called the Last Supper. Um, and it says, as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus knows. And one who is eating with me. And so naturally, if they all know that Judas is just a pure evil guy, when Jesus says, Hey, one of you is going to betray me. All eyes go to Judas, right? And go, that's the guy. We knew it. He's a Yankee fan. He's a cat lover. I mean, he's got all the telltale signs of a dark heart. You know, somebody who's just opposed to the ways of God. There's nothing good in him. That's not what happens on that day. They began to be sorrowful and they said to him, one after another, is it I Am I going to do it? They didn't know. They didn't know who it was. 
And here's the reality. It's easy for us to go, well, Jesus knew who it was, and they were going to find out later that it was going to be Judas. But can I just suggest this to you? They all betrayed Jesus. Because when Jesus needed them the most, and he was arrested, and he was brutally tortured before being nailed to a cross to die a painful death, you know where they were? Far from him. Every single one of them experienced the reality of coming to a place where they said, you know what, this is too costly for me. And the word betray means to hand over, to sell out would be maybe a phrase that we would use in our day. And for every single one of them, Judas, but all of them, there was a point at which the price was too high. And maybe it causes us to ask this question, is there a price where the cost is too much for me and my commitment to Jesus ends and I will step back, I will walk away rather than continue to journey with him? Because that experience was common to them all. They weren't all the exact same experience, but it was a common experience. Where in one way or another, every single one of them sold out their commitment to Jesus ended because the cost was too high. And I wonder for us if maybe there are times in which we say, you know what, I may have a price too where the cost is too high. A price where my commitment might end. And I think the reality of what happened in this last week to everybody who had walked with Jesus for three years and saw the miracles and heard the teaching and in one way or another walked away. I hope that it can turn our attention to our own hearts and lives and say, you know what, that can happen. That happens in this world to real people because of a whole host of different reasons. They're not all the same. So what more specifically was it that Judas was struggling with to help us answer the question of why did he do it? What were the issues that were rumbling around his heart and his life? And I want to suggest a couple things to you. And again, I believe these things that he was struggling with are things that we can struggle with as well. Here's the first one. Jesus did not meet his expectations. Oh, you say you're the Messiah? Yep, Jesus is real clear about that. The Messiah was a long-promised one that God was going to send into this world to bring the kingdom of God in a whole new and different way. Here was the expectation that came along with that. The Messiah is going to punish evil, that's them, and he's going to reward the righteous, that's us. God is for us and he's against them, and so when he comes, that is all going to be set right. And Judas saw Jesus and said, you know what, you're not living up to this expectation because you're not doing what I think you should do and that is this. Bless us, punish them. But again, this is not unique to Judas. A lot of people struggled with that expectation on Jesus. You go all the way back to when Jesus goes public for the first time and he steps into a synagogue, kind of like, you know, a Jewish version of a church. 
And Jesus steps in there and he picks up the scroll and he opens up the scroll to a place in the book of Isaiah where it predicted what the coming Messiah was going to be like. And he reads these words, and these are like electric words that people have been longing to see fulfilled. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight of blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And people are like, yes, Jesus, if you're saying you have come to do that, you are our guy, because we know when that happens, it's going to go well for us. Oh, and by the way, those who are oppressing us, not going to go well for them. And so they're like, you know what, Jesus, you're great. And you really got maybe a future, you know, as this preacher kind of guy here in our setting. But then Jesus goes on in that moment. And he begins to talk about some moments in the history of Israel. And he talks about how God has blessed them, but not only them. And they all spoke well of him. They marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Jesus, you are the guy. But then he goes on and he references this one story. There were many lepers in Israel from the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. That's one of them. That's not an insider, that's an outsider. What are you saying, Jesus? We know what the expectations are supposed to be, and we know what you are supposed to do. And Jesus says, you know who God's reaching out to? Everybody. You are welcome. Insiders, outsiders, God is reaching to all people. And to us, we might think, well, wow, that sounds really good. That sounds really great. The reaction that day, not so great. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They get angry. Goes on to tell us that they grab Jesus, they take him outside, and they want to throw him off a cliff. I'll be honest, I've had some negative reactions to some sermons that I've given, but nobody has ever tried to throw me off a cliff. No one's ever tried to throw me down the hill into South Weber down here, and I'm just saying... Don't get any ideas either, okay? But on that day, that's what they want to do to Jesus. And it says, and he just walked through their midst. And I don't know what it was about that moment, but Jesus walks away from that and says, no, I'm going to continue in the direction that God is going. And there are moments in which the expectations that we bring and the direction that God is going collide. And at the intersection of those two things is a critical moment for our faith and our understanding of God. Will we stick to our expectations? Or at that point, will we say, you know what, Jesus, you have not lived up to my expectations. So I will step back. I will step away. I will be angry. Here's the way that maybe it can play out for us in a day like this. Maybe we prayed for somebody to get better for a long, long time, but they do not. And we brought an expectation along with that. And if that's not what happens, what happens at that intersection? is really important. Maybe we prayed for a relationship to be made right or somebody to come into our lives that we've been praying for for a long, long time. But it just doesn't seem to work out that way. And at the intersection of my expectations and the way in which apparently God is going is a crucial moment in our understanding of who God is and what it means to walk together with him. Judas is one of many who saw Jesus, the coming Messiah, as somebody who was useful. He's going to help us, and he's going to punish them. But jumping back into that room where a woman takes 
an alabaster jar of a precious perfume and pours it over his head. There's such a contrast there. For her, Jesus is not useful. He's not a means to get something from him. Instead, he's just simply worthy. And in that moment, she recognizes herself as one of the many, one of the masses that have been invited to come by the grace of God. She understood that the reward of following Jesus is not stuff that comes along with him. The reward of following Jesus is Jesus. And so Judas is somebody who thought of Jesus as useful. But she saw him as somebody who was worthy. And I don't know about you, I know in my heart, in my life, there are certain expectations that I bring. And they are not always met. But what happens at that intersection? Really crucial. And I think that's something we probably all share. And we all wonder and we all struggle with. That's just reality. Judas ultimately made a decision. You know what? I'm going to step back. I'm going to step away because Jesus did not measure up to my expectations. Another thing that he was wrestling with, Jesus lived with a double life. On the outside, Judas was probably a guy that if you looked at the 12 disciples that Jesus called, you'd think, man, there's the head of the class. He was in charge of the money bag that they carried with them. And if you were going to choose somebody to be in charge of that, you wouldn't choose somebody who was not qualified. Chances are they thought, you know what, that guy is sharp, he's bright, he knows what he's doing. Here, you're in charge of that. You know what he was also doing? helping himself to some of the proceeds. When Judas responds to breaking the alabaster jar, pouring that on Jesus' head and saying, hey, why didn't we use this for the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So there was a public Judas, and then there was a private Judas. And there were things that he was doing in secret. And yeah, they wrote about this after the fact. Did they know that he was doing that? Not at this point. Jesus did, but they didn't. Not the disciples. And so there was the public part that looked good, looked the part. But there was the private part of Judas' life where greed was fueling, seeing Jesus as useful. And when he saw a tremendous prophet go out the window by somebody saying, Jesus, you are worthy, and I will respond in an extravagant way, that secret life of his factored into the whole complex picture. Is it possible for people to live secret parts of their lives? And maybe even in ways that we know are destructive are not helpful. Aspects of our lives that we think nobody's going to know about this, nobody needs to know about, and I sure hope nobody finds out about it. And that disconnect about the outward part, the public part, and the private part can be so destructive, can be so detrimental. And it really is an invitation to bring that into the light, to get whatever help we need to deal with whatever issue it is that we might want to keep on the inside, keep away from public eyes, because in one way or another, we know it's not helping us. So are you, am I covering a secret? Am I living a part of my life 
where there's a disconnect between the outside and what's inside. Judas wrestled with that. I think there are plenty of people who wrestle with that as well. Why do you do it? Let me suggest one more thing to you. Judas missed the message that it's all grace. From beginning to end, it's all grace. Let me show you one picture of that from Judas's life. We're going to jump back to Friday now in the Passover meal, what we often call the Last Supper. And they're all sitting around a table and they are participating in the Passover meal, which had a number of very specific aspects to it that had been carried out for a couple thousand years. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus, um, this is one of his followers saying to him, Lord, who is it? Who is going to betray you? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now that just looks like, you know, some real fine detail to us, but there's something so important in what is being played out in this moment. In the Passover meal, one of the aspects of it was a bowl. And inside of that bowl was a mixture of some bitter herbs, horseradish and things like that. And the bitterness of those herbs was for the purpose of illustrating just the bitterness of sin and slavery. And there would be a point where the host of the meal, and on this night, Jesus is the host of the meal, would take some bread, dip it into those bitter herbs, and then he would hand that bread to one person around that table. This is a moment called the korek. And it was a moment where that person was honoring one of those guests at the table, saying, you matter to me. I love you. You are important. And I'm so honored that you are here. Well, who is it that receives that on this night? So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, to the son of Simon. And do you see what's happening in this moment? Jesus knows somebody's going to betray me. He knows who it is. But he chooses that moment of this sacred remembrance of God's deliverance. And he hands him a piece of bread and says, Judas, you matter to me. You are loved. And the one who is sovereign and knows all things, even what is in his heart in that moment, in that same moment, extends grace, extends an opportunity, extends an invitation, extends a decision. Judas, what are you going to do with it? I know what's in your heart, but you matter. And you can come. And so Judas makes his choice. A few minutes later, he gets up and he walks out and he meets with the scribes and the chief priests and tells them where Jesus is going to be going and he is betrayed. But I hope that we see this picture for what it is. As long as there's breath in our lungs, there is the grace of God that is available. And maybe if you have wrestled with some of the darkness, the reality of your own heart and soul, and you wonder, where does that put me with God? He invites you to come. He knows. He knows the truth about you and me. And he 
invites us to come and he says, you matter and you are loved and there is grace, but it is our decision to make. The sad epilogue of Judas's life, at one point it says it would have been better if he had not been born. And that must refer to the consequences of the grace that he walked away from, the decision that he made. But right to the very end, Jesus was saying, you can come, you matter, you are loved. There is grace that is available to you. That's the message to everyone, insider, outsider, people who wrestle with expectations and not understanding the way things really are to those who have a disconnect between the outside and the inside, living different aspects of a secret private life, and to those who maybe bring different ideas about what it means to be related to God. Jesus says, come, you matter, and you are loved. The good news for all of humanity, because these are some issues that we all wrestle with, is simply this. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in me. And boy, is that good news to people like us. Because the truth about us is nobody makes it on their own. And we need somebody whose grace, somebody whose power, and somebody whose love is greater than the truth about us. It's more grace in him than sin in me, sin in you. Would you bow your heads together with me as I pray? God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love for us that, God, if truth be told, sometimes I fear we might think, yeah, well, of course, God would love somebody like me. But God, would you help us to see the reality of ourselves and to recognize that, no, it's grace from beginning to end. It is the love of God reaching to undeserving people, and that is me. And just like one woman who in a moment of clarity recognized you are worthy because of who you are and because of what you've done and because of what is available to you, through you. And God, may that be some of the clear moments that we have in our hearts, minds, and lives. Our best, last, and greatest hope for life together with you is found through your grace and nowhere else. And so God, draw us closer to you and may we recognize as a result of seeing our hearts for what they are, may we know how much we need you, not just here and now, but God, every moment of every day. And so help us to lean into you all the more, to trust you all the more, to seek after you all the more. And may it only draw us closer to you and bring honor to your name. And we ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.